Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 206 of the podcast for August 14th, 2014. My guest today is Ed Pound. He's the co-author of the book Factory Physics for Managers that was released in April. Uh, it is, of course, a new version of the original factory physics textbook that's really well known in operations management and industrial engineering classes. Uh, it's a book I used in college, oh, gosh, 20 years ago. And um, that book was the subject of podcast number 25 with one of the co-authors of that textbook, Professor Mark Spearman. So you can go to leanblog.org slash 25 if you perhaps want to listen to that podcast first. Um, Ed is the Chief Operations Officer of Factory Physics, Inc., a company that was started by Spearman. And in this podcast, we're going to talk about a number of things, including the origins of the term factory physics and what it means. Um, and, you know, some stuff that might sound kind of wonky. It's, uh, you know, relationships between uh, capacity, throughput, inventory, variability. That might sound dry, but this is really important stuff. It's very foundational. Uh, it's been very important to me and, and my career. And this new book, Factory Physics for Managers, is meant to be a more accessible book uh, for leaders uh, and, and people working out in industry or in healthcare uh, compared to a textbook. Um, so there's a lot of good stuff here. Um, I hope you enjoy the podcast. And uh, as always, you can go to leancast.org uh, for all episodes and information about how to subscribe and get notified about new episodes as they come out. Ed, hey, thanks for being a guest on the podcast today. Morning, Mark. Uh, glad to catch up. So can you start off uh, introducing yourself um, and, and some of your background and, and also talk about your role at Factory Physics, Inc. for the listeners? Sure. I uh, spent my entire career in manufacturing. Uh, my, my educational background actually is in mechanical engineering, and my first job uh, was out of college. Was uh, As a manufacturing engineer, I worked a couple of years in Japan. And uh, make a long story short, have worked uh, in industry both at the corporate 500 level, uh, uh, the Fortune 500 level, uh, with JVC and uh, Allied Signal, which is now Honeywell, and then a number of small entrepreneurial ventures. And uh, what I'm doing at Factory Physics, uh, essentially, my my formal title is COO, and uh, but that includes a lot. I do a lot of uh, client interface. Uh, delivery of services and um, just general marketing and uh, speaking and trying to spread the word about uh, the operation science of factory physics. Yeah, uh, I'm curious. You know, with your time in Japan, uh, a lot of people who worked in Japan got exposed to Lean and the Toyota production system. Was that part of your experience there? So that's interesting. No, it, actually, it wasn't. I at JVC makes uh you're probably aware of it makes uh electronics like tvs and uh stereo systems that sort of thing uh the one interesting part was uh this was 1987 88 uh and that was kind of before the um lean toyota production system had really hit it big it was starting to hit it big in the states and um I remember I used to have to go to a separate plant uh, from the one in Mito, which is about 60 miles northeast of Tokyo. And every morning I would have to write my mokuteki, which is purpose in Japanese. And I asked them the first day, what do I write 
because I'm going down there to do manufacturing, production, engineering type work. And they said, just write Kaizen. And so every day, my purpose for going down to the plant was Kaizen. And that was my, my first exposure to Kaizen. So when I got back to the States and people were talking about Kaizen, uh, it was interesting to see that um, that comparison. Yeah. Well, let, let's um, talk more about factory physics. Um, you know, I, I introduced or interviewed uh, Mark Spearman um, a couple years ago. Gosh, I'm going to have to look this up. It was like five or six years ago. Yep. Uh, Mark was a professor of mine in industrial engineering when I was an undergrad uh, at Northwestern. So I was right about 20 years ago now that I was uh, taking his class and it was actually a pre-publication um, copy shop version of what became the factory physics textbook, which I know a lot of uh, sure. listeners have, have probably used and hopefully uh, you know, it's well-worn and well-read. Um, no, I, yep. I interviewed Mark uh, seven years ago, um, back in episode 25, and I'll, I'll post the link uh, to that in the show notes. But um, tell, tell the listeners maybe who don't know the book at all, you know, at a real high level, what is factory physics and, and some of the background behind that phrase? Sure. So Mark Spearman and Wally Hopp, who are the co-authors of the, the textbook Factory Physics, were both undergraduates in physics. And uh, as Mark always likes to say, uh, they figured out it would be better to eat than do physics because there wasn't a whole lot of work in physics. And so they both ended up uh, serendipitously at Northwestern University, both of them with PhDs in industrial engineering. And I was actually just talking about this with Mark uh, a few days ago. And he's like, I, I didn't, I got there. I didn't even know Wally for a year, but once they got together, uh, started talking, they had, they found they had this mutual interest in physics and they were kind of, they did this survey of what's going on in industrial engineering. And their conclusion was there's not really, where's the science? They didn't really see a science like physics is a basic science that explains the, how the universe works. And so they kind of looked around and said, you know, we're trying to understand these relationships um, between capacity and inventory and time and variability. And the state of the field was either on one end to do, you know, OR and uh, operations research is the highly technical, highly academic end of the spectrum. And uh, but typically what happens with that is if you're going to use uh, the OR research, you have to hire somebody who's got a Ph.D. in OR has studied it a lot and then you know for an executive whether or not they actually are going to take the time to understand the math um, is probably not an option but they're going to essentially just work on the credibility of the person who they hire and at the opposite end of the spectrum is uh, particularly in the last you know 30 years or so technologies come along and people want to do a simulation of everything well that that has its own set of pitfalls and they kind of said no you know, and looking at the science, in other words, observing nature and operations and how do operations behave, you know, what are those relationships? And uh, an example of that is, you know, when, when Isaac Newton said uh, an object will either remain at rest or continue moving in a straight line unless acted upon by some outside force. You know, there's no math. There's no software there. He just made an observation about nature and it's withstood the test of time, and some people today would say, oh, that's so simple. Anybody knows that. But they didn't know it at that time. Right. And um, so when Mark and Wally looked at it, essentially they came up with this idea that there are these fundamental relationships between inventory and time and capacity and variability. And uh, the idea with 
factory physics, what's now called factory physics, was to help people understand that intuitively in a way that doesn't require them to get a PhD, that they can take the concepts, uh, apply them, you know, the next day after they've uh, kind of gone through the overview training and uh, put them to work. And the name actually came from a, I think, a training session they had with Motorola maybe in the late 80s. And they were explaining these concepts and this approach as they were kind of figuring it out themselves. And a guy kind of raised his hand and goes, oh, this is like physics of the factory. Uh. <laughs> and uh, so the name stuck. Although, you know, as you point out, uh, the, the concepts apply very well in healthcare. We've actually done some work in healthcare, but that's kind of how it got started, and we've just stuck with it. Yeah, and... Yeah, it's. I think these laws of physics, and I think we can delve into this a little bit more. Some of these relationships um, um, be between uh, inventory, whip, cycle time. Um, we you know, we learn these in class. I'm I'm having a flashback now to sitting in the lecture hall, and mm -hmm. and Mark talking about like you know moving pennies around on this sheet of paper with different boxes. Sure, it's like this very manual simulation of flow through a system and what happens when you know you start stuffing the system full of too much whip and you know i was taking classes you know at the same time involving you know uh, coding um you know writing code for optimization software and doing computer simulation and the thing i always fall back on are you know the the the, the really simple practical lessons that were, were taught in that class and obviously there's there's math and a lot of um, theory behind it but um, yeah I, I do sort of think of these as laws of physics and I almost get sort of you know upset when I hear you know somebody's <laughs> opinion oh okay we should aim for 98 percent utilization and I think yep. okay you're violating laws of physics yeah <laughs> well get you, tense inside <laughs> yes definitely that, that is the issue because you know there is science where you're trying you make observations of nature and you test them and then there's math and math obviously helps you uh, put together models that uh, that will be predictive about what's going to happen about these relationships. And you're right. What happened? What what I see happened. A couple of things that happen with executives a lot of times. One is the the siren lure of technology. People just say, oh, you know, let's get these computer systems in, and they'll just take care of everything for you. And then the other thing is uh, they use the wrong models. And particularly one of the models that's used that drives. Uh, counterproductive behavior a lot of times is the unit cost model and mm -hmm. the idea with the unit cost model is that you know uh, the unit cost of an item is the variable cost plus the fixed cost divided by the number of units and so um, you have to figure out how to allocate do this allocation scheme to to distribute that fixed cost and so what that would say is um, that uh, to get the lowest unit cost, uh, I should make as many units as possible so I spread out that fixed cost across the units and that gives me a lower unit cost. And that's that's one of the, the, the downfalls. I mean, that's a great model for allocating revenues to expenses. And this is another important point because a lot of times if you have that discussion with uh, accounts, finance folks, they think you're trying to tell them, oh, no, you can't use that, you know, you you're doing it all wrong. No, you're not doing it all wrong. That's a great model for allocating revenues to expenses. The problem is it's not a good model for understanding the behavior of operations. And as you pointed out, when you get to very high levels of utilization uh, of your uh, resources, 
things get out of control very quickly. And uh, so uh, on the one one hand, you, you get, you know, this idea is, oh, just get software and, and uh, you know, I can start the program and I can turn my brain off. And then, uh, or the other thing you get is software is nowadays people will say, oh, you know, if we just had more real-time data and we did uh, faster and faster looks at that data, it would get us better control. Um, that's like saying if we could just predict the future, you know, we could make millions of dollars in, in the stock market and then not have to work. And so you've got on one hand people using the wrong models for uh, what they're trying to accomplish. And then the other hand, this idea that, oh, if they just have enough technology, you know, you can control anything perfectly. And it's uh, it's it's a dangerous combination. Yeah. And um, probably not unique, but maybe rare in, in my work uh, with hospitals of, of ending up um, very often grabbing an easel pad or a whiteboard and, and sketching out Little's Law and starting to draw these curves because that, that siren song of keeping everybody busy or keeping everything sure. busy, it just sounds so good. And you're right, you know, cost measurements uh, may may drive that, whether it's in, in a factory or uh, in, a, in a hospital, you know, manufacturing people would say, well, we're going to we're going to start more production. We're going to we're going to add more whip because that'll allow us to spread out our costs and it'll look like we have a, a lower unit cost. But whether it's factory physics or the Toyota production system and, and Taiichi Ono, there's so many great lessons about the need to focus on flow and not just focus on on unit cost. Um, you know, yep. It was Ono who said, you know, factory managers tend to get more upset about seeing idle people or idle machines than they are about idle product you know, coming yeah. through the factory. Well, you know. It's interesting you bring up Ono after, uh, unfortunately, it was right after we wrote uh, the most recent book, Factory Physics for Managers, I ran across this article where I think it was uh, Ellie Golrat and a guy named Fox, who I think worked with Golrat, actually interviewed Ono. And they said, what is the science behind the Toyota prediction, production system? And interestingly, <clears throat> Ono's answer was, well, you know, I don't know. I've actually hired economists to come in and tell me the science behind it, but I, I don't really know what the science is. And they'd say, well, I don't understand. How, how does that work if you've been so successful? He said, all I was trying to do was to make products flow like a river. So mm -hmm. that was his concept that he was working off on working on. And so the issue with that is because there wasn't uh, a, a fundamental scientific model underlying that, what you see nowadays is people taking the concepts and trying to apply them in practice to the extremes without understanding all the consequences of doing that. And uh, it's important to understand those underlying relationships or else you can drive yourself over a cliff. Yeah, there, there's yeah. If if people are relying too much on something that sounds like dogma, I, I've seen companies hurt themselves by saying, "Oh, okay, the key is low inventory, so we're going to get rid of all of our finished goods inventory." Right. And you know, when I did a grad school uh, internship at a company, they they had really really hurt themselves because now they weren't making their shipment schedule to their customers yep. because they had a long lead time process with lots of variation in in quality and lead time. And, you know, in hindsight, they realized it was just the dumbest thing ever to right. follow this dogma of, well, you know, we're going to ship just in time. They weren't capable of that. Yeah, it's it's not understanding your capabilities, not understanding the underlying behavior, which probably is a good time to kind of do a quick summary. I mean, of 
the science. So the science of factory physics says that, you know, any value stream, any process, any supply chain is made up of demand and transformation. And uh, in the if I have zero variability, I can perfectly synchronize demand and transformation or demand and supply. As soon as I make something, somebody shows up and says, that's exactly what I wanted. How did you know? And they give you their money and they walk away happy. And then you switch over and make something you never made before. Yeah. And then the same thing happens again. And then your your processes always work perfectly. Machines never go down. Setups yeah. are instantaneous. People always <laughs> show up. It's a wonderful world to live in. And when I describe this to executives and managers, people kind of start either smiling or looking at me like I'm, you know, I have two heads or something. Yeah. Uh, but we don't live in that world because uh, physics physics uh, says there's variability. And uh, when you have variability and you're trying to synchronize demand and transformation, you end up with buffers. And this is kind of this is that's why we talk about it's a, the science. This is the natural behavior of operations. You will have buffers. It's not something yeah. that's like, oh, I read in the Harvard <laughs> Business Review about this new concept called buffers. We ought to look at getting some. You're, you will have buffers, and so the idea is there's only three buffers. There's inventory, time, and capacity. Yeah. So for an executive, what executives need to do is understand the relationships between these. And again, you don't need a PhD. There's a, about three fundamental relationships that we teach. Um, and uh, once you understand those relationships, your job is to pick the best portfolio of buffers. You know, you might have some inventory, you might have a little bit of time delay, you might have some capacity buffer that works to meet your business's uh, marketing and financial goals. So the set of buffers uh, and the level of variability that you choose to deal with is different from business to business. And it's not that difficult to understand. But what we see is just what you mentioned. Uh, you know, sometimes it's good to have more inventory. Sometimes it's good to have less inventory. Sometimes it's good to have more capacity, sometimes mm -hmm. less capacity. I mean, if you're in an ambulance service, you've got a lot of capacity. Uh, ambulances sit around a lot mm -hmm. and there's very low utilization. But that uh, that's the business model. If you are making, um, you know, uh, gasoline at a refinery, you have very expensive assets and you yeah. keep those things running all the time. But those are you know that's high utilization so that it just depends on the business and what we see and we talk about this in the book the new book um, is people jump back and forth just as you describe one year oh yeah we're gonna make the demand let's cut all inventory and then BAM customer service yeah. goes in the tank and so now we go back to adding inventory or adding costs and then cost is too high and then BAM we go back over to you know now we gotta do something about uh, you know our response time and so what happens is people jump back and forth, back and forth. And, you know, if you call that continuous improvement, it's uh, it's basically a guarantee for lifetime improvement. I mean, lifetime employment, because uh, you're always jumping from one thing to the other. And our point is that if you look at the science, there are these trade-offs. You will not get rid of the trade-offs between, you know, low inventory versus high inventory, low utilization versus high utilization. So what you need to do is, as a manager, understand those relationships and pick the ones that work best for you. And then then you're predictive about it. You're not always reacting. That jumping back and forth, <clears throat> you can call that continuous improvement. We would <laughs> call that what we call whack-a-mole management. You know, yeah. you ever seen the whack-a-mole game? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That pendulum so, swings back and forth way too far to too many extremes, right? Absolutely. And I've seen people who say, yeah, you're right. You know what? We we did Kaizen's last year, and then now we're doing them this year, and they work completely against what we did last <laughs> year. And so the idea is there is a, a method. Uh, there is a science to help people understand this. It's not 
overly complex, uh, and it really helps managers. What you're trying to get to is managers to have good intuition. In other words, the, the models that they're using are the right models that keep them from making stupid decisions ahead of time, like the idea of, oh, yeah, let's just cut our inventory. We'll build to demand. Yeah. You know, you have variability. You're going to have buffers. Well, and, and it served me so well in my career that, yeah, I like that thinking of it as, as intuition that I learned uh, from Mark Spearman. And, um, so, let, I mean, let, let's maybe transition and talk about introducing this science. You know, how, how do we try to build this intuition in executives? Uh, maybe this brings us to talk about um, the factory physics uh, for managers uh, book and how that came to be and, and what the purpose sure. is there. Yeah, so the the original book, Factory Physics, Mark and Wally, as you said, you know, I think, when were you at uh, Northwestern? I, I, I graduated in 95, so I took his oh, class in, I believe, the fall of 94. Okay, yeah, so that was, I was in uh, at, at Kellogg in Business School in the, the Triple M program, which is a joint oh, right. uh, MBA between uh, the McCormick Institute of Technology and the Kellogg Business School, and the focus was on manufacturing, and so mm -hmm. I was there at the same time. And, you know, they had the cliff notes, but they were really trying, they were kind of working their way through it, and they were writing a textbook. And um, Mark left Northwestern about 96, mm -hmm. went to Georgia Tech for a while, and then he ended up starting uh, Factory Physics, Inc. in 2001, and I joined him in 2002. But, you know, having been working through that, I think the book was first published in 1996. <clears throat> After, you know, however long it's been, uh, 10, 15 years, we've had all this experience. And when you hand a manager a 700-page textbook and go, oh, yeah, all the information's right here, you know, their eyes tend to roll back in their head. And so the idea with factory physics for managers was to talk about these same concepts that we've just been discussing more for managers. Um, and it's, uh, it's a much shorter book. And uh, there are, it's a lot more focused on the concepts, a lot of visual examples to help people understand it. But the idea was to get to more of an, um, an industry uh, approach to how to put these concepts in, in practice. Mm -hmm. So um, what, what sort of um, stories or examples or, or sort of, you know, kind of prime examples um, that, that executives would, would be interested in? I mean, they might not, what, what grabs their attention? I mean, it might not be the factory part or the physics part, but it's really, it's about improving their business, right? Yeah, and I think the, the, the one thing that grabs people's attention, and, and, you know, when we're doing presentations, we have, you know, two or three slides right up front. That one, the one slide that grabs people's attention is this idea that, that there are trade-offs. And if you're not, if you don't understand that, you're, basically just whipsawing back and forth and you're doing this whack-a-mole whack management. And so a lot of times people look up and they go, oh my gosh, that's exactly, you know, our world. So when we're talking about a science, first we talk about the environment, we're describing what the environment's like, and then the idea that there's these three buffers and there's variability. And actually, you know, you can choose to increase variability. You know, a lot of times you hear from Six Sigma, it's like, oh, we got to have zero variability. Well, no, what you really want, the goal is, is to make the most money. And you can choose to increase variability by, for instance, adding products or services or whatever. Heck, you know, half of the Fortune 500 annual reports will say something like, we're going to lead the market by providing the most innovative products and services. Well, that's a conscious decision to increase variability. So variability is not always bad. The point is, if you increase variability, your buffering requirements are going to go up. That's just uh, the laws of science. That's the way nature behaves. But if your revenue goes up, more than cost, 
uh, it's a good thing. It's a good thing. Good decision uh, for the company. So that's those are two of the fundamental ones. Uh, one of the things uh, a takeaway that people um, seem, seem to it seems to uh, resonate with executives and managers is this idea, particularly nowadays, you know, where you see from the Toyota production production system adherence that's idea of one piece flow. Oh, we got to make one piece flow. Well, as it turns out, and we go through that in a fair amount of detail in the book, um, you know, too little whip is just as bad as too much whip. And really what you need is if, if you have variability, you're going to have to have some whip to make sure you buffer that variability or else you're going to lose throughput. And too many times, I can't tell you how many clients, prospective clients I've been to, they're like, oh, yeah, we've got this one-piece flow and we've got inventories really low, but, you know, we have problems with customer service. Well, yeah, you have problems <laughs> with customer service. Mm -hmm. Because you're not getting enough throughput out to meet the volume of demand that you need. Although the ones that you, the products that you do get out, you get out very quickly. And so that's kind of interesting because a lot of that initially people's intuition is bad about that because they'll think, yeah. oh, if I can get things out quickly, I'm going to have good customer service. But that's kind of like saying, you know, there's a the example we give in the book is, you know, there's a forest fire on a thousand acres and every person on each acre is a, a person with a house, right? And so if you're doing this uh, low whip approach, essentially that's like the fireman showing up with a garden hose and saying, yeah. oh, I can be on any one of these thousand acres very quickly. But, you know, it's like, well, you don't have the volume to deal with the problem because, you know, you're not going to have enough water with a garden hose to put out a forest fire. And so mm -hmm. that concept is another one where we try and emphasize to people that no one piece flow can drive your throughput over a cliff. I actually worked at a client where we walked in the second day. We did one of our analyses, and <clears throat> second day it was obvious that that was the problem. And these people, uh, within about two months' time, had increased throughput 30% by putting more whip in the system. And unfortunately, they had been working on that one-piece flow concept for about 15 years. So that was a lot of lost opportunity. Yeah. Well, it's funny. I mean, you know, we're talking here about the science of of operations and and we keep running into this this fight between dogma and science i mean you know the the one piece flow dogma is violated even uh here at the toyota plant in san antonio you can't see me i'm pointing out my window down to the south vaguely oh, pointing yeah. at the factory for some reason but they have buffers with it different points within their truck assembly line so sure in theory it's generally single piece flow but they do have um, equipment problems. They do have, um, obviously, you know, people pull, uh, pull the and on cord, and if they can't fix the problem, they stop the line. So, you know, t Toyota is being practical as opposed yes. to um, just oh, yeah. uh, following dogma. Yeah, so blindly. that's that's an interesting point that you brought that up because that uh, Mark actually wrote chapter one, and he very specifically goes into the fact that Toyota has pretty significant capacity buffers. And nobody seems to realize that, you know, the fact that just when I set the tack time on a line, if, if uh, you know, the longest task takes, I think the example we give is 25 seconds, I'm not going to set the line to run at 25 seconds because yeah. half the time, you know, people are going to be into other stations and, you know, people mm -hmm. will be fighting and hitting each other with wrenches and that sort of <laughs> stuff. But so what you do is you set the tack time, you know, say at 30 seconds. Well, that's a capacity buffer. That's essentially, I think, like a almost a 20% capacity buffer, maybe like 13, 15%, something like that. So that's a capacity buffer. And then if you set, uh, 
which Toyota, I don't know how much they do it now, but when they first got started, you know, they would schedule 10 hours of work in a 12-hour day because they wanted to make sure that whatever their quota was, they made it. And so that's another capacity buffer. Yeah. And so people look at Toyota and they go, oh, it's an assembly line and one piece is moving at a time. And they think, oh, that's that's just perfect one-piece flow. Well, actually, yeah. no, There, there's a lot of buffers in there. And yeah. then, like you say, if there are stations or whip accumulation points between parts of the assembly line, that's another buffer. And so, you know, this idea that there's this perfect mm -hmm. world with one-piece flow just really drives people uh, – over the dogma cliff, and yeah. it can be highly counterproductive. Well, and, and let's let's not forget the uh, significant inventory buffers in the system uh, sitting on dealer lots. Toyota has right. no more figured out build-to-order car manufacturing than anyone else did. When I worked at Dell in 1999 and 2000, um, a lot of automakers and I was part would come and visit, and I, I would often help lead these tours because I had background in the auto industry. And they were all trying to figure out how to you know build a car and get it to a customer within five days. And I think they all pretty well decided that's impossible for their business because at Dell, a PC took like literally three minutes to assemble. Yeah, it was just you know, it was simpler than. Um, well, most any other type of manufacturing. So Dell could do that very quickly, but then they had big, huge capacity buffers, exactly. meaning half the factory was sitting empty during yep. the parts of the quarter when sales were low. And that, that's a yep. whole different, you know, whole that is a whole different story, but that, that's an interesting, uh, uh, comparison because we actually did some work with Dell mm -hmm. and, and that was back then. And their model was, as you described, they had a huge capacity buffer. And so around Christmas and graduation, you know, they had all these people, working all the conveyors and the assembly stations. Uh, but th their their dogma uh, was no finished goods inventory. And mm -hmm. our response to them was, well, wait a minute. I see these ads in the paper, you know, every Sunday that I'm, se I'm selling these at the time, you know, whatever, I don't know, $900 computers. I mean, you know that's going out. Why wouldn't you hold some finished goods inventory? Oh, no, no, we, we can't do yeah. that. So interestingly now what they've done is they've completely gone away from that model right. i'm not saying it doesn't make sense that that whole industry has evolved but now you know they've outsourced all their manufacturing mm -hmm. to i think foxconn most and, of it yeah. yeah and they hold a ton of inventory so it just it's depends from on china yeah yeah well or mexico yeah uh, but yeah. yeah it um it just depends on you know what the business conditions are uh, but you should understand you know make a conscious decision about what your buffer portfolio is rather than just saying oh you know, let, let's just have zero inventory or, yeah. you know, something crazy like that. Well, one, one thing you, you cover in the book, which I've, I've heard people say is is another form of, of dogma, is Boeing and their moving assembly lines. Yeah, that, that's essentially, that. yeah, there's an example in the book about that. We, we just think that was uh, the wrong production design. And actually, I talked with a, a director of future plane production, and he, he told me, he said, you know, we, we know everything about aircraft design. I think the four things are like lift, thrust, drag, and I don't know, weight, or I forget what the four things are. But he goes, you know, every time we go to make a plane, uh, we redesign production. And so this idea where they put um, jet planes on a moving assembly line, the tack time for a jet plane is, you know, like one every three days or something like that, uh, just is... In our view, the perfect uh, example of applying the wrong model um, to uh, a particular business where it doesn't work as well. And, and again, that's another example we describe in the book. And, and I'm not saying they didn't get any benefits out of it, but our, our contention is that 
there would have been uh, a lot more productive ways to get the results they got than just you know shutting down the line for two months at the height of demand or whenever they did it mm-hmm. uh, to install a moving assembly line because that's what Toyota did. And so, uh, yeah, yeah, I think there, there's a, that's a pretty good example of just kind of following dogma rather than looking at um, what works best for yeah. your business. And I have, I have friends who work at Boeing and other people who have reached out and they'll of course go unnamed here, but they, they feel like, yeah. they feel like heretics because they yeah. question the, well, uh, you know. Mark, let me tell you, <laughs> if you, uh, approved and you're running a $250 million, uh, project, it will by definition be a success. Okay. <laughs> That's just kind of the way that works. There's not a whole lot of room for uh, plan, do, study, adjust. That's going to be plan, do. Yes, it worked brilliantly. Yeah, it worked great. And let's get everybody to show them and tell them it worked great. Yeah. But, um, so, but anyway, Boeing's a great company, I, but that, in that particular example, uh, you know, everybody make mistakes, and we think that was a mistake. Yeah. Well, um, boy, there's so much we could talk about here, but we're we're running a little low on time. Um, sure. One one other thing I wanted to bring up, I mean, it's right on the cover of the book and in, in the subtitle of the book. You talk about uh, what you what, what's called quote unquote a post lean six sigma world. Sure. Uh, can can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Because that's uh, that. It was intended to be a bit provocative, but the idea is not a world without Lean or Six Sigma. Those are very, very useful techniques. The idea of a post-Lean Six Sigma world is is a world where you're not working on dogma. You're working on an operation science, and you apply those techniques as they're needed. And what you have now is sort of the trinity of, you know, continuous improvement approaches. There's... Uh, there's theory of constraints and lean and six sigma and people kind of go back and forth. Does this work or that work? And our idea is, wait a minute, let's understand the fundamental science, these relationships, and then use what works well when it works well. And so that's the idea. We, we are highly supportive. And we talk about this in the book. I think organizations do have to have personnel and resources uh, dedicated to continuous improvement, especially larger ones. Mm-hmm. But uh, we just want them to do that uh, with a more um, predictive a- approach, a more uh, science-based approach. Yeah, and and you know, I I, I would agree. You know, um, that we the there's definitely a need for that science. I mean, like I said, that was so foundational and so helpful uh, to to me in in my career, and I think some of the other lean concepts. I mean, I, I don't really practice Six Sigma. That's just not my background but um it, it all go it goes hand in hand and i think yep. a lot of uh what we're taught about lean uh fits in very well conceptually with factory physics and factory physics can help us explain why you know some of these lean practices will teach and people say well why should we do that instead of just say instead of saying yes. well toyota does it we can, yeah exactly we can point to the physics and, yeah and, and that i think that's very helpful book. And particularly for your audience, you know, where you're you're mainly focused in healthcare, we actually did a uh, an engagement with a hospital in South Florida, and they were trying to what they really wanted to do was to reduce patient flow time through uh, the ER. And as it turned out, uh, it's one of those laws of science. They between Thanksgiving and Easter in South Florida, yeah. demand goes through the roof, and you know. If the hospital is at 98% utilization in terms of beds, 
uh, people are going to back up in the ER because what happens in the ER is, you know, you get people in and then a lot of times they get admitted to the hospital and you have more and more people. You literally, what they were doing was having people um, on gurneys in the hallways, you know, and we just said, look, if you're not you're going to turn anybody away because that that was the mission of the hospital. We don't turn people or, away. or the law says you can't turn people away from the emergency room, at least. Well, there you go. Uh, yeah. And if you're not going to. Well, but you. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm not going yeah, to. I mean, they, there, they but, go on diversion or I mean, yeah, yeah but yeah. Anyway, but um, anyway, if you're going to have this uh, demand in excess of capacity, people are going to be back up. Now, one of the things that we did find was, you know, they were doing some things that could have decreased the utilization of the hospital. I mean, occasionally. Well, th this idea where doctors show up and do their rounds all at the same time and people get uh, get um, uh dismissed uh i forget what the right word is but they get checked out of the hospital all basically at the same time that's batch processing right. and so that tends to increase you know the cycle time so there were some things that they could have done in the hospital but i, I remember standing uh you know we're kind of doing our final report out and we, we had seen that they had all these other consultants in there and i just told the ceo i said you know one of the things i can tell you for sure is you don't need to keep hiring consultants to tell you how to reduce flow time because as long as you are at 95 98 percent utilization in the hospital people are going to back up in the um in the er right. and uh you know you can either build a new hospital get more capacity in the hospital uh, but that's just the way it's going to work and um actually they ended up building a new hospital so it applies all over yeah well, I, I would certainly encourage even you know listeners who are, are in healthcare to to pick up the book or at least go check out the website. Um, I, you've got a, a sample chapter that people can read and and, and see if this piques their interest. Um, talk talk a little bit about uh, website where people can find yeah, the book, sure. how they can learn more. Yeah, so so the new books we've talked about is Factory Physics for Managers. You can get it at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com. The website is FactoryPhysics.com and. Uh, there's plenty of information up there, case studies uh, and the like, uh, or you can send us an email and um, we'll get back to you. Okay. Well, uh, Ed, thank you so much again. My, my guest has been uh, Ed Pound from Factory Physics Inc. And, and the book is Factory Physics for Managers. Highly recommended. Um, and uh, Ed, I want to thank you for talking to, uh, to me and the listeners today. My pleasure. You're welcome. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.